Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Bunker. This is a special series of one-offs. I'm Nick Cohen, and what I'm trying to do in this series is bring you authors who've written books that stand up on their own merits but have a contemporary relevance. There's not very well-written books. I'm not going to pass you off with some academic who's recycled a near-incomprehensible PhD. They're proper books by proper writers. And what could be more contemporary than pandemics and i am delighted to welcome laura spinney to the program she's the author of pale rider the spanish flu of 1918 and how it changed the world and laura i think is with us now yes i am hello hello i guess when you were writing laura i mean you couldn't have possibly have known that covid was coming but did you think that maybe another pandemic another flu pandemic was on its way pandemics most certainly weren't history Absolutely. I mean, if you talk to public health experts, they're always a little bit exasperated because there have been quite a lot of pandemics in our history. And it's it's just something that happens periodically. We're almost certainly going to have one or more and more than one probably this century. We've already had two in the 21st century. So they, they are not surprised. Unfortunately, science doesn't allow us yet to predict when or where they will happen. That's the problem. The Spanish flu was first of all, a huge pandemic in Pale Rider. You keep saying, well, you know, historians of it keep upping the death toll from 20 million to Mm. 50 million to maybe 100 million. It was the most extraordinary event. I mean, that's absolutely right. There's a a fundamental fact that you have to understand about that flu, which is that there was no reliable diagnostic test. Uh, And this is at the root of everything, basically, because we don't have any reliable way of knowing how many people were ill or how many people died. The first estimates of the death toll started coming out quite soon afterwards in the 1920s. And they were in the kind of 20 million ballpark, which meant that for people of that era, they thought of it as a disaster on a par with the First World War. I mean, numbers of dead were relatively easy to count from a war. And and we know that with some margin of error that the death toll of that war was 18 million people. And as you say, the estimates got increased over the 20th century, basically because of a recognition that the problem was under-reporting, not over-reporting. And by the end of that century, we were at a spectrum of between 50 and 100 million dead. And it is very wide and it is very vague. And it's not clear that we'll ever be able to do any better than that. The mystery, I suppose it isn't a mystery now, it's become a cliche to say this about the Spanish flu, is that although there are memorials to the dead of the First World War everywhere, and books and histories of it, have been written by the tens of thousands and the consequences being felt through, discussed through the 20th and into our century, the Spanish flu seems to disappear from popular memory. Is that true or your book suggests that might be a rather Eurocentric perception of it? I mean, I think it is true uh, that generally speaking, it's f- pandemics are something we forget, unlike wars. It may also apply to natural disasters. I think that might be an interesting comparison. But if you speak again to public health experts, they'll tell you that we go through this very unhelpful cycle of panicking when a pandemic comes along and then forgetting it completely as soon as it's gone. So we don't tend to learn the lessons that we should in order to be prepared for the next one. 
it's not altogether true. We do learn lessons. We've learned a lot of lessons, I think, in recent history from Ebola, for example. And in Asian countries, you could say that they learned lessons about SARS that put them in good stead for this pandemic and that we didn't learn in Europe and North America. And so we do make progress. We do learn lessons. But overall, I think the public health view would be that we don't learn well enough from, from the pandemics that we experience. Sitting in a basement in London, pretty much forbidden from going out, I find it incredible notion that we will forget this period or put it to the back of the, our, our minds. But is is that sort of lesson of history? <laughs> it is the lesson of history, although there's a really interesting debate going on at the moment with people who work in the field of memory studies about whether this one might be different. And the thinking is that this is the first sort of digitally witnessed pandemic We had the one of 2009, but that's generally considered the flu pandemic of 2009. That's generally considered rather an anticlimax. It didn't kill many more than a seasonal flu kills uh, any year, although that is already a very large number at about 600,000 people. This one is obviously much bigger, although not on the scale so far, and let's hope it doesn't get there, of the Spanish flu. And every little detail about it has been tracked and traced and conserved on some server somewhere. You can follow the infection rates and the death rates in real time, practically, if you want to. And all of that is being saved somewhere, along, of course, with a, with a huge volume of fake news and, and false information, too. And so, in a way, we have a much better record of this one than of previous pandemics. And it remains to be seen, but it'd be really, really interesting to find out if that fe- affects the memory that we form of it. Can you explain to people why the Spanish flu, I'll I'll call it that even though as your book explains it wasn't Spanish at all, uh, didn't start in Spain at all, why that particular variety of influenza, why was it so deadly? Why did it have such such a terrible effect on the world? I mean, so every flu strain that now circulates or that has ever circulated in the human population started as a pandemic because essentially you get a novel a form of the virus coming out and, and the human race has never seen it before. And so it's always a rather calamitous encounter. And then through their interaction, through the fact that some people die and others are left uh, more or less immune, the disease becomes milder. And that's the kind of natural process of things. And that's what will happen every time, even if we don't intervene, that we, with our public health measures, can theoretically uh, accelerate the pandemic and bring it to an end sooner and therefore uh, limit the number of uh, casualties it it causes. That one was more uh, violent, virulent than usual. We think it was at least 25 times as lethal as most pandemic strains of flu, um, though that's probably an underestimate. Again, we come back to this problem of numbers and not having had a reliable test at the time. But at least 25 times more virulent, that is extraordinary and needs explaining. And we don't really understand. We have bits of the picture. But one theory, leading theory, which I think is really interesting, is that it had to do with the fact that that pandemic strain emerged in time of a world war. So the idea is that the human context matters. Um, And in that particular case, that it might have had something to do with the fact that you had all these young men squashed together in the trenches of um, northern France and Belgium. And they were probably, in many cases, already enfeebled by hunger, by stress, by their experience of the war, by other diseases, and importantly, by having had their lungs gassed in some cases, and that they would have made a sort of fertile breeding ground for this virus. 
which to kind of make a short work of the evolutionary argument, didn't need to uh, moderate its virulence uh, in order to survive. It could just race through these young men and therefore maintain a high level of virulence for a very long time. Even even if it killed a carrier, it could just move to the next guy along in the train. Exactly. And, And the kind of short lesson to take from that is poor infection control can lead to much more transmissible but still virulent variants, as we've come to call them. And I think that might be what you're seeing in South Africa and the UK at the moment. One big difference from now was that doctors in 1918, 1919 didn't know what they were dealing with. Mm. They didn't even know flu was caused by a virus, didn't even know what a virus was. Contrast that with now where, I mean, it's quite an extraordinary achievement. I mean, even professional naysayers of the type who inhabit this broadcast, you just have to stand back in awe at the speed with which vaccines have been produced. You talk in the book about that had consequences too, that if you like, conventional medicine was rather discredited after 1919. Definitely, yeah. I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right. What's happened this year has been breathtaking. Um, And I think, you know, scientists themselves have been taken aback. Uh, The whole kind of activity of science has been transformed by this pandemic to the extent that in April I could write about people saying it's impossible, we'll we'll never have a vaccine before 18 months, and and they were proved wrong. In 1918, you're absolutely right, people were scientists, science, medicine was caught on the back foot. And and they think, I think they did show a sort of lack of humility. They were were absolutely convinced that they had the thing under control for a while uh, uh, until it became obvious that they didn't Um, They made vaccines against bacteria that they found in people's respiratory tracts, and which, interestingly, complicated the picture because most of the people who did die of that flu died of secondary complications, that is, bacterial pneumonia. So uh, bacteria were involved, but obviously they weren't the um, main cause. And so after that pandemic, you see science take this huge leap forward. Maybe you could think of it as them being piqued by their humiliation. And the whole field of virology takes off. Uh, There's this enormous amount of energy, intellectual energy, effort and money put into understanding this disease and other diseases like it, such that by the 1930s, you've seen the first virus under an electron microscope and you have the first real flu uh, vaccines, that is vaccines that target the flu virus coming online. I wonder if, as science has done so incredibly well, as you've just been describing, whether rather than having a reaction against expertise, which you sort of get in the 20s and 30s, people saying that what you need to do is take fresh air, go walk, you know, hill walking starts, live the outdoor life, rather than listen to what some fuddy-duddy doctor who got it all wrong says. I wonder if there'll be a re- reaction in favour of expertise this time. I suppose, you know, this is just pointless speculation. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, having, having, having come through Brexit with government ministers uh, assuring us that the people have had enough of experts, I'm wondering if the people might start to quite appreciate experts again. It would be nice, wouldn't it? One would hope so. I think we're kind of due a turn in that direction because things were very much going in the opposite direction before this. Maybe a lot of it will depend on how the vaccines perform. 
at the moment we're, we're we're trying to get them rolled out there you know distribution is the issue um it's a massive massive logistical operation obviously so there's that on top of the actual science of the vaccines i think we need to watch this space a little bit see how the various forces play out um but yeah it, it will come i think in the next phase to focus on vaccine hesitancy and how the vaccine itself the vaccines plural build their own reputation as they uh, are you know given to people in the various priority groups and yes you you have this problem and and we saw kind of a natural experiment of it this year with the chinese with their very authoritarian top down approach which nevertheless <laughs> seems to have worked and the rest of us struggling to do something similar while preserving uh, civil liberties um which doesn't seem to have had such a good result and and it, it makes me wonder what we mean by freedom when we say uh, we have to protect freedoms um i mean if you look at wuhan today people are walking around the streets are full economies yeah. growing um we are not in that situation we are in a much worse situation and and there's you know the okay we have the vaccines we're rolling them out but it's not looking good at this precise moment you know we've been deprived of some very basic liberties you can't go and visit your elderly relatives uh you can't come together for christmas you can't dine out you know you can't earn a living in many cases or go to school so i i wonder when people argue about constraints on their freedom of being forced to wear a mask whether we've gone somewhere wrong but anyway perhaps that's a distraction i don't see any real reason why we shouldn't be able to pull it off in dem- democratic societies uh, i mean countries have done it there are countries that have done it new zealand but they are small i mean taiwan south korea you might say they're more confucian democracies they're democracies with a strong respect for the collective, and for authority. Yeah, I think that might be the point, is it's not so much about the style of government, but the level of trust or solidarity in the society at the moment that the thing breaks out. That That is a problem, because if the trust isn't there when the thing declares itself, then I think it's probably too late to build it. I don't think our government has done a very good job, but trust is going to be absolutely crucial to getting people to comply in the vaccination campaign, which is the, the key to ending the local epidemic. So it's still necessary to build the trust that has been frittered away. And I think it's going to be very difficult, but um, maybe not impossible. So, yeah, I think it's more an issue of trust and solidarity within the population than the style of government. But, of course, we can't really test that. I was just looking today at... The levels of conspiracy, on the whole, we're, we're quite good with anti-vaxxer conspiracy theory. We, it's nothing like level compared to France, say, which for yeah. some reason, it's absolutely... Do, do you know why it's so strong in France, considering your own Paris? We've had our fair share of scandals, honestly. I'm thinking of the contaminated blood one, though that affected Britain as well. Um, recently, Mediator, if you go wider than vaccines. I, I think there has been quite a good clutch of scandals here that people talk about, rehearse, uh, remind, each, uh, remind each other about. There is that lack of trust underpinning what's going on here at the moment. Although there was a survey published, I think, just a few days ago, which showed that the number of people uh, who were prepared to take the vaccine here had jumped something like 14 percentage points over the last three weeks from 40-something to 56%, something like that. So, you know, I think like uh, there's a there's a guy at um, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia called Paul Offit, who's a pediatrician and a 
and an expert in infectious diseases and vaccines. I was chatting to him the other day and he was saying you shouldn't you should really take these surveys with a pinch of salt until the vaccines actually Yes, exist. quite. Because it's perfectly reasonable. It's perfectly reasonable to have your doubts and be skeptical until you can see the data for yourself. I think the the, the fact that those numbers are changing now that the vaccines actually exist is really interesting. I wonder if you feel your work's been misrepresented. I'll tell you why, because I've seen a couple of references to Pale Rider in uh, magazines and articles about this, and they all seize on one point you make about the Rio Carnival, about how there was this kind of orgiistic release. And and, and people love that, and, and, and very few people add, well, a lot of a lot of this wild celebration uh, wasn't consensual. There were a lot of rapes. Right, but, absolutely. But they then go on to say, well, just as the Spanish flu ended and then we had the Roaring Twenties, so this will end and there will be the most incredible boom and the most incredible creativity. And I wonder if, if you, again, it's speculation, but I wonder if you, when people talk like that, if you think, well, well hold on. <laughs> I do think it's very context dependent and I do think that it is a very selective reading of my book and of history, which uh, uh, is a sort of inherent problem with history. I mean, I had a wonderful eyewitness from Rio, as it happens, um, in the memoirist Pedro Nava. So we have a lot of detail from there, much more than we might have from other places. So yes, it's very selective. On the other hand, historians do tell us that populations tend to bounce back more quickly from pandemics than from wars for the simple reason that pandemics don't destroy the capital. Uh, Your infrastructure is still there. So um, it probably did feed into the roaring 20s, although the problem with that era, of course, is always trying to disentangle the effects of the war and the pandemic. Uh, It probably did feed in, just as I argue in my book, that it probably also fed into the baby boom of the 1920s, which has always been put down exclusively to the war. I think, you know, it's just much more nuanced than people say. There, there will be a rebound, I think, um, in, in all sorts of domains, but it will depend on the local context, and it might not be as spectacular as the one they saw in Rio. Well, well, also, Laura, considering the fact we now have the most enormous bubbles in Bitcoin and tech stock, we could go from the First World War and Spanish flu to the Wall Street crash without the intervening <laughs> period of the jazz age, the way, the way our luck's going. Exactly. I mean, you have to look at the longer view as well, and we are in a very unstable bit of history, it seems, generally speaking. Indeed. Um, I want to ask you finally about lessons from it right at the start of this i noticed that there were you could not move in journalism for people writing oh our whole working lives are going to change because of this people are going to be working from home it's the end of the office you know the end of the high street as people shop online all kinds of things in response to the pandemic but the one obvious thing to say and to take a lesson from was not being said that is as with the spanish flu as with all varieties of flu uh, this has come from man's mistreatment of animals. And mm. people, except people who were already vegan, say, people weren't saying, Look, I'm going to think again about eating factory farm food because, you know, all these diseases are plowing out of it in, uh, from China and everywhere and antibiotic resistance and everything is coming from 
as you say in your book, you know, our animal husbandry practices, mm. uh, we are now pumping genes into nature. It does seem that there are limits to what lessons people will draw from this. <laughs> well, if there's one inevitability about pandemics, it's that people will um, start predicting very early on about how life will change. And in fact, uh, if you look back at history, very few of the things that people predict will change do actually change. It, it's not to say that there aren't changes. There are changes, but they tend to be subtler, slower, and not in the areas that people think they will be. Uh, certainly in the case of 1918, I think, you know, inevitably with a lot of conservatively estimated 50 million people, there were going to be changes. They are also dependent on what the local context is. Pandemics tend to accentuate trends that were already uh, in place or underway. And yes, the other thing about human nature is that I think that we like to predict that things will change except things that will actually force us to examine the way that we live our lives and yeah. it changes ourselves. And the problem with the pandemic is that you can look at the very superficial causes. There probably were problems in in the Chinese wet markets and in Wuhan and, the, and in that, that immediate interface between animals and, and humans, but there are much deeper, profounder problems that go global and that we need to think about. And I'm not sure that people are completely ready to start questioning those things too. Such as what, Laura? Well, such as the industrial scale of farming, uh, the way that we produce food. Um, and I'm not saying that the sim- answers are simple. I don't think they are. Uh, we have to find a way to feed people. Globalization has had its good aspects in feeding a lot more people. So the solutions are not simple, but we do need to start talking about them, I think, more seriously, more urgently. Well, well, that's what strikes me. It's not that there are easy solutions. It's just that whatever debate you have on the effects of the pandemic, you will never hear factory farming of animals, which is also, in the end, factory farming of infections. Right. You're much more likely to hear uh, the wildlife, the illegal wildlife trade being blamed, which is also a factor, but it's probably not the biggest one. So we avoid the thing that's staring us in the face. And we also like to separate things out into compartments. So we talk about climate change and pandemics if they have nothing to do with each other, the the problem about the production of food and and deforestation, that that they're all considered separately, but they're massively interlinked. Are you optimistic now, Laura, that we're getting out of this? I think so. Yeah, I think the vaccine is key. Uh, I do feel optimistic that much, if not all, of the vaccine hesitancy will sort of melt before it, though uh, we'll have to wait and see. You know, that's so dependent on how the vaccine performs and how the logistical distribution operation works. I, I worry about the fact that all the rich countries have snapped up the supplies and leaving the poorer countries um, to struggle It'll depend very much on what happens next, but we have that vaccine. We have the key to solving it. This is unprecedented and extraordinary and amazing. On that optimistic note, I I will draw the discussion to a close. I have to say, because the evil capitalist podmasters who run the bunker and own my soul have insisted, I say, that the bunker is available every day with an extended edition on Tuesday. Since the last book's podcast, I found out what this uh, Patreon or Patreon thing is they keep insisting I talk about. What it is, is is one of the most old-fashioned, ludicrous, virtually medieval ideas I've ever heard of. <laughs> as, every, as every reasonable person knows, the only people allowed to make money out of journalism are Google and Facebook, and that is right and proper. But in the throwback to the 20th century, they're actually asking you to contribute money towards journalism and perhaps as some kind of retro act or you know like dressing up in 1960s clothes you would consider doing it to to their patreon page how quaint indeed i mean what kind of wheezing nag did these old timers ride into town on? anyway 
Laura, thank you so much for staying with us and talking to us. It's been fascinating. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. The Bugger Daily was presented by Nick Cohen, produced by the capitalist pig dogs at Podmasters, Andrew Harrison, Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofranievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>